Good morning. I'm Shelton Woods, and I'm glad to be worshiping with you today. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 17. The scripture is also found in your, in your bulletin. If you are visiting and you want to know more about us, what we're all about, we'd love to tell you. Uh, just come up to us after the service, and we'd, we'd love to meet you. About 300 years after Christ, there was a man in China named Mozi, and he was the prominent apologist, defender of a foreign faith coming into China. Uh, Buddhism, moving over from India, was coming into China. And so Mozi wrote a book, it's called The Disposition of Error, it's not that long, but it's an imaginary dialogue that he has with those that don't think that Buddhism should come into China. It's a, it's a foreign religion. And there's one objection given after another. And Mozi gives a response, defends on why we should allow this religion into to China. And about after the 17th argument, the person who's trying to keep Buddhism out of China kind of just throws up his hands and he says, every time that I ask you a question, you answer from the Chinese classics, not from the Buddhist sacred texts. Why don't you use the sacred texts? Why are you using the Analects and the Mencius to answer these questions, Chinese sacred texts? And uh, Mozi says, because that's what you understand. <laughs> I'm using what you understand. And to use the Buddhist text, it would be like uh, trying to explain five colors to a blind person or the pentatonic scale to somebody who is deaf. You just won't get it, but you understand the classics. And so that's why I'm using that in defending the coming of Buddhism into China. In Acts chapter 17, we have something rather similar to this in that Paul is coming to a new place, probably had never been there before, and we're going to see as he defends Christianity, he does it in a somewhat unique way. His theology doesn't change at all. His methodology changes a little bit when he gets to Athens. And I think that the Athenians probably could understand him because of that. When Brad and I were looking over the, the book of Acts and we came to chapter 17, he said, I wondered if you wanted to, to, to preach a sermon on, on this because of where you work. I've, uh, I've been a professor for about 26 years at at the university, and I've been a dean there for about 20 years. And a week doesn't go by that I don't have somebody in my office talking to me about what they think Christianity is. And more and more I find that most people in America, they really don't understand what Christianity is because it's always Christianity and something else. Christianity and economics. Christianity and religion, Christianity and politics. 
And there's just a, a, a basic misunderstanding of this. So we, we look even at the founding of this country, and, and we have difficulty understanding. We, we, we look at the man who, who wrote this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we point back to that, and you say, see that? That's the founding of our country. That there is a creator who has given us an inalienable rights and we have liberty. That person owned slaves and that person didn't believe in Jesus Christ. And I find this over and over as people come into my office. They, they just have a complete misunderstanding of what Christianity is. I think it's because of the media. I think it's because of the church. It's always Christianity and something else. When Brad told me to do Acts 17, or we talked about it, I said, well, I, I, I'm going to need like two sermons or ten sermons to do this, an hour each. And he said, well, just preach two sermons five hours each. So you guys just sit back and relax here. No. No, uh, I'm not going to be speaking today about Paul's message. That will be in two weeks. Uh, Joe will be speaking to us this Friday on, uh, Joe Gerber on Good Friday, and Brad will be preaching to us next week on Easter Sunday. And then in two weeks, we will finish up these verses. I want to look at Acts 17. Let's look at this together. Beginning in verse 14. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and those who happened to be there so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst 
But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. Uh, If you have determined the allotted place that we are supposed to be born and where we're supposed to live, then you determined that we would be in this room before the foundation of the world. We pray that you would give us by strength guidance to look at what the gospel is, what Christianity is, because we pray through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Three points to this sermon. I want us to look at the actions of Paul, the actions of the Athenians, and the actions of God. Let's begin with Paul. He had to have some excitement coming to Athens. I mean, Athens in the first century was like, I don't know, you put Harvard and Princeton and Oxford and Cambridge together, and that's what Athens was. It was the center of philosophy and learning, the birth of democracy, Socrates, Aristotle, his Plato. But I, just two things about Paul here. I want to, first of all, look at how relentless Paul was. We've been reading in Acts, uh, Paul just got out of being beaten in Philippi, and then he's gone to two other towns and cities, and he's been run out of them. And then he comes to Athens, and he's dropped off there, and Paul's by himself in Athens. He, He has no friends with him. And you'd think that, you know, Paul, take a break, you know, You've just been run out of two cities. You still have the bruises on you from Philippi. Just relax. And here you are in the greatest, on the Western world, philosophical city in the world. Why don't you rest? How do you start your day? I know how Paul started his day. I I know it from these verses. Paul started his day by saying, okay, is it the marketplace today, or is it the synagogue today, or where am I going to go? I've got to talk about Jesus Christ. I can see him. I don't know if you, I can see him walking down the marketplace and the people saying, oh no, here he comes again. Oh, Paul, we've already heard this. Not again. Hey, boys, how are you doing? I got, a, I got something to tell you again today. Because he wasn't self-absorbed. Because he could say, I've learned the secret of contentment because I am so energized by the gospel. I've got, I'm getting up and I'm going and I'm speaking about it today. American culture is a culture of individualism, a culture of uh, the pursuit of happiness. God save us from ourselves. I've been an elder for about 25 years here now. And uh, oftentimes, you know, the work of the elder, are, we're dealing with um, people who are desperately unhappy in their homes, desperately unhappy at their jobs. It's all about being self-absorbed. I've never had a problem of somebody saying, I can't stop talking about the gospel. I can't stop. I can't wait to get up in the morning and find out where I can go and preach the gospel. Why was Paul this way? Because he believed the gospel. 
because he knew what Good Friday and Easter was. Because it wasn't an ideology for him or a worldview. He also understood that uh, you can't like Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. You can't like Jesus. Jesus said, I don't want to be liked. You either hate me or you love me. You either die to yourself or you live for me. You either crown me when I come into Jerusalem or you kill me. And as Brad preached so eloquently a few weeks ago, God knocked Paul on his back. And all that he could do was get up in the morning and say, I've got this message to tell. Who can I tell today? Nothing could stop him. Paul, we're going to beat you. Well, I consider the sufferings that I have not to be compared with the glory that's going to be. We're going to put you in prison. That's great. I'm going to convert the guard there. We're going to send you to Caesar. That's great. I'm going to convert people in Caesar's household. Well, then we're going to kill you. Well, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. You're not going to stop me. But sometimes I'm afraid when we read about St. Paul and the book of Acts, we kind of see him as like this super Christian that didn't ever have any problems or anything, that had the answer to everything. And you say, well, well, Shelton, the reason I don't really witness that much is because, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have all the answers. So I'm going to give you this diagnostic test here. And if you pass this diagnostic test, you're ready to speak about Jesus Christ. Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever been lonely? Have you ever felt abandoned or been abandoned? Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever been so low that you cannot even leave your house or get out of bed sometimes? Have you ever had a feeling that you're lost? Have you ever felt useless, forgotten? Have you ever had a broken heart? If you say yes to any of that, you're ready to preach the gospel. (laughs) Because our gospel is there's this man who has come. And he's the healer of broken hearts. He's the one that gives meaning to all of life. There's someone that I run to. And it's not this cosmic Santa Claus or an imagination. My hand. It was a person in space and time who came to bring peace, who came and died on a cross when they put thorns on his brow and rose on the third day. The second thing I notice about Paul here is he left a very safe space. You know, we can read this and, and not get this, but... When Paul went to Athens, if you read that again, what you'll find is the first place he went was the safest place for him, and that was the synagogue, his tribe. He went to the synagogue, and we actually see that unlike other synagogues he went to, they really liked him. They enjoyed him. Let's have a debate here. Let's, let's reason together. That was the safety zone. I don't know if any of you kids have ever played this or adults played this when you were growing up where you're playing chase and there's a safety zone, sometimes it's a tree and you get there and, you, and you, nobody can touch you if you're in the safety zone. Paul was in the safety zone in Athens in the synagogue. But I want you to see how radical Paul's transformation was. You know that story about the lost sheep that was read? Just before that, it begins this way. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear, hear him and the 
Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. That's what the Pharisees were. I mean, these Gentiles, they're not even equal to these other sinners. And yet Paul leaves the safety zone to go and speak in the marketplace. And why did he do this? Because he says in another place, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. I've observed your objects of worship. I see all of the idols and the altars you have here. I've got a message for you. Most people don't like to be in debt, but if you're a Christian, you're in debt. You're in debt to tell this good news to the world. I remember I uh, have a, a good friend in Wales named Jeff Thomas, and he was a pastor of Aberystwyth Baptist Church in, in Wales, and uh, there's a big university in Aberystwyth, and he got a call from a mother and said, uh, and I've gotten many calls like this, by the way, at the university. My daughter is at your university in She's abandoned the faith. She's no longer going to church anymore. She's going out and getting drunk now on Friday and Saturday nights. One night stands. I'm wondering if you could go talk to my daughter. And Jeff went up to the dorms of Aberystwyth, and I've gone into speaking people at the university, and we had the same experience. You start talking to these people and they start spouting this sociology that they'd gotten in Sociology 101 or Anthropology 101. And you leave and Jeff says, you know, I left and I thought, you know, that woman owed me something. That student owed me something. And then it hit him. She owed me nothing. I owed her everything. I owed her speaking the gospel to her. We're debtors to every race, every tribe, every background. Second of all, the Athenians. There's just two things that we want to take notice with regard to the Athenians rather quickly. I didn't really, uh, I was born in Southeast Asia and I didn't finally move to the United States until I was 22. And so oftentimes there are English idioms, American idioms that I hear, and I, and I don't understand them. And one of them is faceplant. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know what that meant. So I googled faceplant, and then I go to images, and uh, I, I see what faceplant is. You just absolutely fall on your face. I want to tell you that Athens had an absolute faceplant in terms of its reliance on philosophy. Here is the center. This is where Socrates was. Here are the greatest minds. But these materialists and pantheists, these Stoics and Epicureans, they had absolutely no answer for the Athenians. If they did, why are there all these altars? Religion and philosophy, these are disciplines where humans are trying to figure out God on their own. And if there's one good example of what happens to us when we try and figure out who God is, uh, we need to go and look at Athens. 
the great emptiness that the Athenians had. I've seen, well, one person said that in the first century there were more idols in Athens than the population. The objects of their worship were all empty. I'd be a millionaire if I got a dollar for every time I've heard this from a student. I think that God is like this. I think that God understands uh, my sexual morality. I think God understands uh, who I am. Making them the final reference point And after one of those one-night stands, I ask, well, how's that working for you now? Well, you might say, well, at least the Athenians gave us a great ideology, democracy. Athens, the home of democracy. Talk about a face plant. Do you know what the, you know, the Athenians were embarrassed about this when Paul went there in the first century? But, but this is what democracy did to Athens. It's, it's soon going to be happening here. Um, there was a man named Socrates. And uh, they didn't like Socrates asking questions. And so what they did was they put him on trial. And uh, the... By the way, the charge was this man is preaching new gods to us. That was the charge against Socrates. So they put him on trial and they decided that he was guilty. How did they decide that he was guilty? They took a vote. Democracy. And then they said, okay, now we've got to take a vote to see what we're going to do with Socrates because he's introducing these new gods. And the vote was, we're going to kill him. So those of us that love democracy, it's great to love democracy when you're the 51%, but it doesn't work if you're not the 51%. And, and, and so these Athenians were even embarrassed of these ideologies that they had clung on to. But then there's this thing, this altar to the unknown God, the altar to the unknown God. I want to give you a different take on that than maybe you've had if you've read this chapter before. I think a lot of times when uh, you see this altar to an unknown God, uh, you think that it was made by somebody who was maybe skeptical or agnostic. I used to have a high school classmate over in Southeast Asia, and he would tell me, you know, I'm a Muslim, a Christian, a Buddhist, and uh, a Taoist. Now, could you, uh, could you say that again? And I why are you a Muslim and a Christian and, and a Taoist and a Buddhist? He said, I just want to cover my bases here. <laughs> because when I die, I don't want to go to hell. So if I'm at least one of these, then at least I, I have a pretty good shot of making it. And so maybe that's what you think, that this was an altar to an unknown God, and so they're just covering their bases. But what if it would have been a person like this? What if it would have been a person who said, um, God, I know that you're there. I look up at the stars at night, and I know you're there. I know there's these thousands of altars that I walk by. I know 
that you're not made out of gold and silver and stone. I know that you're not the moon. I know that you're not a goat. I know that you're not a cow. I don't know who you are, but I know that you're none of these things. I'm going to make this altar, and I just want you to know that I'm looking for you. I want to know you. My broken life and my conscience tells me that I'm in desperate need, and I want to know you. So will you listen to me? Will you accept my offering? I don't want to invent something in my mind of who you are. I don't want to be the final reference point. And every day they walk by that altar and they said, God, I want to know you. Will you come to me, please? Which brings us to the final point, the action of God. There's a city in Turkey about 12 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. Today, it's the fourth largest city in Turkey, almost 4 million people, two Idahos in this one city. It's where Mark Antony and Cleopatra, where they first met. And it was the center of Greek learning in Turkey. 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish family that lived there. And they sent uh, their son to rabbinic school. And he would come home and he loved the Torah. But his parents said, uh, well, we want you to study the Greek poets. Oh, I don't want to study the Greek poets. I don't want to memorize them. I don't want to memorize the poem of Epimedides, who uh, begins with uh, these words to Zeus. In him we live and move and have our being. I don't want to memorize that. Is that going to be on the test? I don't want to memorize Eretus, who says, for we are indeed his offspring. But he studied it. And now this little boy is the grown man, Paul. And he comes to Athens and he understands their language. Let's just dump Paul off here in Athens, which they did, and it all comes together. God's preparation of Paul in Tarsus, this city, 12 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. All of the things that he learned about, you know, this poem, in him we live and move and have our being, that was written 700 years before Paul, and he memorized it, and it was actually to Zeus. And this Paul had been transformed, and he says, Good morning, boys. I've got a message for you today. But Paul wouldn't have had a message unless there would have been another son that was born 2,000 years ago. And this son, he wasn't raised in a great city. And he didn't go to the best schools. He was an itinerant preacher. who went around saying things like, I forgive your sins, who goes around saying, all things were made by me and through me, who went around and said, no man comes to the Father except through me. This Son of God, the Savior of the world, is this what gets us out of bed each morning? This truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
Do you see how he ended his speech? Verse 31, he has given proof that these things are true. How? Not by a cross, not by Bethlehem. He has given proof of all these things by raising him from the dead. Let me close with a beautiful story. While thousands and thousands didn't come to believe in Paul through his message, we do find that there were two people at the Areopagus. And by the way, the Areopagus, that's the courtroom. They were there listening to him. There were at least two people who did, uh, verse 34. Jonesius, who is the Areopagite, that means he was actually one of the judges. And so a brilliant guy, a philosopher. And then a woman, Damaris, by the name and by what we know in the first century of Athens, Damaris was probably a prostitute. A prostitute at the Areopagus. And Paul says, I owe this message to the barbarian and to the Greek, to the wise and to the unwise, to this person who doesn't know anything, but maybe Damaris has been going through with the money that she's making, she's going through saying, God, I want to know you. Here comes the story. 160 years ago in Athens, the Presbyterians in Athens wanted to build a church. And uh, they had quite a bit of money, and, but downtown Athens wasn't great, and there were conflicts going on between the Greek Orthodox and the Presbyterians and, the, and, 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 of course, those that were trying to make money. And so what the Presbyterians decided to do was to build, and it's a huge church. If you go to Athens, you can see it. They built a huge marble church, but they said, let's not build it downtown where we have all these troubles. Let's go to just the edge of town, the suburbs, and let's build our church, a beautiful church there. So they won't bother us, and we won't bother them. By the way, that can be a church mission statement. (laughs) So they won't bother us, and we won't bother them. But God brought Dr. Judas Contensis to that church in the 1990s. The church now is, and I, if you have time, look this up, the first Greek evangelical church of Athens. You ought to look it up. And Dr. Giotis, he says, you know, we have got to break out of this fortress mentality that we have here of us against them. And one of the reasons we have to do this is because we 160 years ago, we were in the suburbs, and now all of Athens has moved over here, and we're in the middle of Athens again. He said like this, uh, we were like Jonah trying to flee Nineveh, so God brought Nineveh to us, and no way to get away from this. And uh, the riots, those of you that follow what's going on in Greece, the riots uh, beginning in 2003, you had a lot of Syrians and Iranians, Iraqis coming into, Muslims coming in from North Africa, and there are all these riots going on. And, um, and, and there was this one place of Athens where all the anarchists live, and there were all these fights going on. And uh, Dr. Giada said, you know, let's go plant a church there. 
And being good Presbyterians, uh, most of the session was about 80 years old, and they said, are you crazy? Go plant a church over there? That makes no sense. They're, they're Muslims. They're, they're ruining our culture. And so he told the Greek Orthodox Church, he said, you know, I, I have this burden to plant a church where the anarchists are and where the refugees are. And they said the same thing. You must be out of your mind. In 2008, there were terrible riots in Athens. Terrible. People were breaking things, and they came by this first Greek evangelical church made out of marble. And they started breaking off the marble, and they broke every single window in that church. Dr. Giotis went in, and there was still smoke in the air, and uh, called the treasurer of the church and said, you know what, Um, every single window is broken here. And of course, the treasurer, the first thing he's doing is calculating how much is this going to cost to fix all the windows. And Dr. Giannis says, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? And now we can break out of these walls and preach the gospel to all of Athens? We can tear down the walls of our tribe and speak the good news in ways that people can understand? There, many of you have heard this from Abraham Kuyper. I want to give a new take on it. Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. How about this? There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence on which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, I want to go there. I want to go there. Paul, I'm going to send you to Athens because Damaris is there. And that's what we want to do at All Saints. Will you come with us? Will you join us in God's plan to call all peoples to himself. Let us pray. Father, thank you for sending Paul to Athens. Thank you for sending Dr. Giotis to Athens. And now on their website, we see that they have become a home for the Syrians and the Iraqis and the Iranians and the North Africans. Help us to have this burning in us to tell the good news of Jesus Christ in ways that people can understand that it is not Christianity and anything, it's Jesus Christ the Savior of the world, through whose name we pray. Amen.